It's the podcast series that helps you stay up to date with the latest tax developments. The Tax Factor from Blick Rothenberg with Heather Sell and Nimesh Shah. Welcome to The Tax Factor, the new podcast series from Blick Rothenberg. Each week, members of our tax team look at news and updates in the world of tax and provide an analysis of what it might mean for you or your business. Joining me again, fresh from his appearance at the Financial Times Festival weekend, is Blick Rothenberg CEO Nimesh Shah. Morning, Heather. It's back to school week and I think we've got a date for the autumn statement. We have, although I'm not sure if it technically is an autumn statement. The 22nd November is more like winter to me and it's definitely feeling like a pre-election autumn statement as well. I think we'll start seeing more and more going into overdrive from Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak on what they might want to do in terms of giveaways. The interesting bit is the timing. As I said, it's falling into winter rather than autumn. And I do wonder, Heather, whether that's been done on purpose to see how the inflation statistics may look come November time and if there is more ability to have some of those promised tax cuts. It's almost certainly going to be the last budget before an election and therefore I can't see us seeing big tax rises. I think what we might get is that the jam tomorrow syndrome that oh we can't quite afford tax cuts yet but re-elect us and look what we can do next year. We shall see. I also think there has to be some kind of giveaway at the autumn statement that would take effect from the 6th of April so people do feel better off but there might not be enough room for manoeuvre from the government and we might see more forward promises in the event that this government gets re-elected. Just getting technical for a moment, even if they promise things from the 6th of April, what often happens is that the election gets announced in March and you then get a very foreshortened finance bill and things get dropped until after the next election. So I think we're going to see lots of promises and half promises, but whether things will actually come in is going to be another matter. In the meantime, hot off the press this morning, the Resolution Foundation, which focuses very much on household and poverty has put out one of their regular reports on what they see as living standards. And the message that they're giving is that whoever wins the next election is going to be inheriting a quite tough set of statistics. And what's interesting is to me how it's varying across the population. Broadly, as you might expect, interest rate rises are really hitting those with mortgages harder and harder. And even people who are still on a fixed rate are probably going to have to refinance next year. At the other end of the scale, pensioners, mostly without mortgages and quite often with savings, savings income is going up significantly. So at a time when we're definitely going into an election, I think we're going to see a big divergence between those who are really struggling and are going to be very fed up about it and perhaps some of the older regular voters feeling happier about how things are going. Some interesting themes in that Resolution Foundation paper today, Heather, around interest rates. And I think we sometimes forget interest rates aren't relatively that high compared to what we saw in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, And there had been calls during the summer when the Bank of England continued to raise interest rates that whether the government would intervene and provide some kind of mortgage support for those that were on variable rates. Now, my own view on that is that it's akin to what happened with the energy support scheme that in a way... I think the government is slightly to blame for some of the inflation that we're seeing now because of the amount of money that was pumped into the system at that point for very, very good reasons. And I think it would have been politically difficult to do anything else. But I don't think they want to get themselves back into that situation again with providing mortgage support right now. And I, I will remind everyone again, rates are relatively not that high. It feels very high compared to the near zero rates that we've had over the last decade. And then for savings interest as well, the 
I think lots of people are going to be pushed into having to do a self-assessment tax return. Uh, these rules changed in uh, the mid-2010s around um, withholding tax on interest payments to individuals. People now receive their interest gross. So people need to watch out around having to file a self-assessment tax return. Probably for 23-24, that tax will be due come 31 January 2025. Definitely something to keep an eye on. Meanwhile, back to another big and continuing issue, uh, pensions. Nimesh, I think you had an interesting debate at the FT over the weekend. I was really honoured to go and sit alongside former pensions minister Steve Webb and uh, Head of Wealth Planning David Goodfellow at Canaccord. And we had a really interesting, lively debate about pensions, some quite diverse views between the panel there. But the thing that dominated that discussion, Heather, was the reinstatement of the lifetime allowance. And you might remember back in March that Jeremy Hunt in great fanfare, decided to abolish the pensions lifetime allowance. This is where we have a cap on the amount someone can accrue in pension savings. And anything in excess of that is subject to a very penal tax charge of 55%. Jeremy Hunt decided to abolish that. But the very next day, the Labour Party came out and said that they would reinstate it if they were elected into government. And that measure cost around a billion pounds to the Treasury and Labour felt that it was a tax cut for the rich. The issue that we debated at much length, and we haven't got time on the tax factor today to go through all that detail is what will happen if the lifetime allowance is reinstated. It's not as easy as Steve Webb was saying to just go back in time. It's not that simple a measure just to say, well, we'll just put it back because people would have taken actions between now and then on what they'll be doing with their pensions. And unfortunately, because of the Labour statement, it's caused a huge amount of confusion and complexity as to whether people should be contributing into their pension with a higher annual allowance now of 60,000. And should people be crystallising pension benefits in advance of the next general election or at worst, taking all their money out of their pension in advance of a change of government and possibly the the lifetime allowance coming back in as well. We could see people, if taking that action, being forced into very high rates of income tax by uh, drawing all their pension funds because they're worried about the lifetime allowance coming back. As one member of the audience said to me, Heather, what a mess the governments have made of pensions over the last 20 years. And it's going to take a huge amount of work to try and simplify if they can at all. It's one of those areas where you save for your pension over probably a 40-year working life or even longer. I'm now towards the end of that period and the number of changes I've seen over my lifetime are huge. I more or less know what I'm doing and I still find pensions incredibly complicated. Turning now, as we said earlier, it's back to school week. It seems to be back to work for the HMRC phone lines. They've had them on pause for three months, allowing HMRC to reallocate staff to catch up with a postal backlog. Estimates say that it would have affected about 1.2 million callers. Why were they doing this, Nimesh? It seems an odd thing that surely being able to help people out on the phone gets rid of a lot of the relatively routine queries quite quickly. Yeah, I think we may have covered this in episode one of the tax factor, Heather, just reminding everyone that HMRC's phone lines were due to shut over the basically of the summer period. That wasn't so HMRC could go on holiday. That was because they were redeploying staff into other areas of HMRC that are under-resourced, and in particular to deal with the post backlog, which in some cases is going back 12 months. So HMRC took this unusual measure of shutting down down over the summer. What we're finding now is that people were pushed into using online services 
using online chat functions if they wanted to get answers from HMRC. And I think this has been a bit of an experiment, Heather, that we may see uh, HMRC doing this again in the future in an attempt to try and push more people to use their digital resources. Phone lines do cost a lot of money to HMRC and the taxpayer, uh, and they do want to try and encourage more digital use and self-service. So I don't think this is the last time that we're going to see HMRC shut their phone lines down, assuming you can even get through to them, that is. I find this one strange. I mean, I, I think I perhaps see more clearly than they do how difficult it can be for somebody who's elderly or not very digitally capable to sort out what can be a very minor problem with their tax. Just somebody who wants to check their tax code or understand why a tax bill has gone up. To me, it's not good customer service from HMRC. I think they need to think more from the point of view of what the customer needs rather than necessarily what HMRC would prefer. And let's not forget how complicated tax is. HMRC's website is full of lots of useful resources, but the complexity of our tax system means it's very difficult, even for learned tax advisors like me and you, Heather, to navigate as to finding the right resource. Moving swiftly on, another interesting report was about overseas property owners. We now have a requirement that the supposed to be ownership of any property should be published, but apparently there's about two thirds of overseas property owners that are still anonymous. What, what's happening there, Nimesh? Yeah, this was a piece of legislation in the drive for better transparency uh, in the UK. So not really necessarily geared at tax, but there might be a tax outcome as a result of this registration and transparency is that overseas owners of UK property needed to register with very onerous KYC requirements and know your client requirements. And that information is now lodged on Companies House. The think tank CAGE Uh, who have published lots of interesting tax reports over the last couple of years, including a proposal around the wealth tax and the taxation non-DOMS. They've now looked at the information on Companies House and found out that there's a lot of missing information on there. And even 10% of properties uh, that are owned by overseas entities are missing from the register completely. There's been issues with the system itself, a lot of confusion around how one may register on it. And also there's a very few providers that actually want to get into the registration itself as well. So whilst there is a better drive for transparency. I think the system needs a lot of work, Heather, around how we can improve it to make sure that compliance is met and also encourage that drive for transparency. Indeed. Although it's worth mentioning, I think a lot of people assume that offshore property owners are escaping tax. That's not the case these days. They will be fully taxed on any UK property, both on the income and on any capital gain when they sell it. That's one of the big changes that's happened in the last five years or so. Yeah. And creating, again, another myriad of very complicated rules on how overseas owners of property are taxed uh, versus uh, UK owners as well. And finally, you spotted a recent tax case, Nimesh, and I said I'd just do some brief comments on it. This was a family planning tax case, husband entrepreneur with wife and children also involved in the business to a limited extent, and they had an opportunity to sell it for quite a significant sum. I think the family realised somewhere over £70 million from the sale. And it was a fully commercial sale to a third party, and crucially, the family weren't the only shareholders. They had something like 60% of the total shares, and they did some relatively routine pre-sale tax planning. There were some gifts of shares to the children and then the children were made directors of one of the subsidiaries so that after a year or so at the time they qualified for entrepreneur's relief. So broadly a big commercial sale and some not too aggressive tax planning but clearly tax planning going on around that sale. It was all disclosed to HMRC and in fact they got clearance on the transaction to say that it was a commercial transaction and then four years later HMRC decided they weren't happy. They raised discovery assessments and tried to 
assess the children to a much higher rate of tax on the basis that the tax planning had as a main purpose tax avoidance as part of a scheme or arrangement. Now, this is only a first tier tribunal decision, so it doesn't set a precedent. But what was interesting to me was that the tribunal judge found that, yes, there was a scheme or arrangement, but it was the wholesale, the whole commercial transaction. And while there was some tax planning as part of that, it wasn't a main purpose of the tax planning to be part of the scheme or arrangement. So the taxpayer won on that one. They were perhaps relatively lucky. It's always a 50-50 case whether uh, a tribunal judge will agree that your tax planning is acceptable or not. But I know that in a lot of commercial transactions, we worry about whether some tax planning is a main purpose and whether that could get it blocked. This is just one sort of helpful result on behalf of the taxpayer. Whilst the facts in this case are quite unique and we won't see a repetition of this particular bit of planning because the law has changed since, what's interesting is the emphasis on that main purpose point in the legislation. I wonder if that will set some kind of direction or guidance and precedent should this go through the upper tribunal and beyond around what is acceptable tax planning on these commercial transactions. So I did find that yeah, quite an interesting case with the emphasis on that particular wording in the legislation. Well, thanks very much, Nimesh. As we said at the beginning, the autumn statement's going to be on November the 22nd. Very conveniently, the Chancellor's fixed that for the day when we record the tax factor. So we'll bring you an autumn statement special with our thoughts and insights on the Chancellor's statement. My thanks to Nimesh for joining me today on the tax factor. A reminder, you can watch that pensions discussion from the FT Weekend Festival on the Blick Rothenberg website if you just follow the links on the homepage. Next week, I'll be joined by someone making their first appearance on the tax factor, Blick Rothenberg private client partner Neil Lancaster, who always has an interesting perspective on tax matters. The Tax Factor is available every Friday on all the major podcast platforms, so please do subscribe and join us again next time. I'm Heather Self. Goodbye. That's all for this episode of The Tax Factor. Find all our previous episodes wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not try Brave Business, our podcast series for entrepreneurs. Find it wherever you get The Tax Factor or on the Blick Rothenberg website. The Tax Factor.